So you're paying people less to pretend you can pay back $400 trillion of debt that's already insolvent. And pay back a trillion dollars of debt at a dollar a second, and it would take approximately 32,000 years to pay back. So $400 trillion, it just breaks our mental models. We don't have a way to comprehend what's actually happening to the denominator of money. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. This is a podcast all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. I wanted to know more about the people converging on this new form of money. Why do they see value in it? What skills enable their understanding? How is it changing their lives? If you're a founder looking for funding or an investor looking to make investments, then please reach out as I develop my network in the space. Do me a favor and chuck us a five-star rating on whichever app you're using to listen or a like if you're watching it somewhere. As insignificant as this may seem, they help a startup project like this hugely. Lastly, if you have any questions at all, please just reach out. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Jake E.S. Woodhouse. Now, on to today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Jeff Booth. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me, Jake. That's my absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for joining. So I always start in the same place, Jeff. Forgive me a slightly boring question, perhaps, but what were you doing and where were you when you first heard about Bitcoin? And what we'll try and do is kind of forward through that to understand you know, how you understood it the way you do today. So it's we've got an hour. It's a long story, I know. So we'll just we'll jump around a bit. But yeah, so where were you at that time when you heard this word Bitcoin? That was it would have been 2010, 2011. I was running my, my business, uh, a technology business that I was building and, and my tech team, a number of people on my tech team were really excited about it. So they brought it to me saying that essentially this could change the world. And, and I it was too busy to, to pay much attention and just kept going. <laughs> and so, and I think this is the case with most, it takes multiple touch points when this thing kind of comes into your life to really start to see it for what it is. I'm a huge fan of your book, The Price of Tomorrow, which has now been released for a couple of years at least. 2010 through to the release of that book, I assume was quite a learning journey for you when it comes to understanding what Bitcoin is and continues to be a learning journey. So can you remember then when it started to play a more central role in your thinking and how that developed over time? So 2017, I bought, bought it for the first time, but still more as an interest, but hadn't taken a deep dive into it. It was more, and I probably have to back up. I had also been talking about it in a parallel path, how technology was deflationary, why are prices going up all over the world when, when uh, obviously prices should be coming down. More of the world is moving on top of technology rails and so, so that was something I, I, I was literally campfire talk for 200 Alex. It was, I couldn't stop talking about it for 10 years, unaware probably that, that Bitcoin was the solution at that time. So in 2017, I, I, I bought first Bitcoin, but still hadn't put together that it could be a solution to the problem I was trying to, to tackle. And then when I wrote my book, so 2000 end of 2018 2019 um it was through that process that i realized that the system was incapable of solving the problem that we're dealing with and the change had to come from outside the system and 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 so then i really got into bitcoin and after the even at the end of the book although i was mostly convinced it was bitcoin I left the option because I was constantly trying to disprove my hypothesis. I was mm -hmm. looking for what else could solve this. And so it was probably after that, that I realized and I went really deep on Bitcoin to realize it was the only thing that could solve the transition that we were in. So fascinating. Okay. So the, the 2010 tech business that you mentioned, teach us about what you were doing at the time in terms of what technology were you building out and what marketplace were you operating in and the 10 years and you've just been bashing your head against a brick wall about why is tech deflationary but prices go up and what i'm really trying to get at here jeff is that what i love is people's personal journeys through life give them a lens on bitcoin so just before we even talk about bitcoin so what were you doing that made you realize oh, hang on what the fuck's happening here with these prices going up but tech's deflationary what does that mean one of the things I, I would say is so that, so the business is a part of my learning, 
but I'm constantly kind of trying to challenge assumptions. If something doesn't work where it's so easy. I find it fascinating that we can each see other people's what's blocking them from success, but we have a really hard time believing it. What's seeing is blocking our own success. So in other words, we won't explore our critical thinking very much. We'll make excuses that it's something else blocking it when it comes to ourselves. So it's not just the business. I saw that in myself in building the business, but it was, it was more that journey that just got me curious about learning in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and that applies broadly to this as well. But if you, if you want just the narrow lens on technology, I started the business in 1999 and. I was a home builder before, and I started the business because I failed to deliver a house on time to, to my client, and I had to put them up in a hotel and furniture and storage. And I was, quite honestly, I was pissed and it, because the supply chain failed me, and I couldn't solve it. This is such a broken supply chain. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to use technology to fix it. So full of piss and vinegar, go and say, I'm going to solve that. I'm going to give up all of my other businesses. I'm never doing this other business again. I'm going to fix this problem. And I so underestimated the problem. And once you've started, it's too late. <laughs> you're you're started. And, and so putting together, raising money, putting together uh, technology teams, building this, and then the first three years trying to build the technology through the dot-com crash, when you had to raise money and there was no money. And so you just learned a lot of things about kind of building that business. And then the business caught fire when we hit, when we turned it on. The first month in sales was 20,000. By the end of the first year, we'd done a million. By the second year, we'd done 14 million, 28 million. So it was exploding in growth. Wow. And it, that explosion in growth was also, it was providing all the cash we needed to be able to grow because we were charging in advance of delivering products that we were selling. And the first technology kind of product that we built, if you want to call it a product, was a logistic solution and a, an enablement solution that probably cost us close to $5 million to build. And then if you advance that technology, that logistics enablement solution today is literally free. And it's way better than the technology we built at that time. And so you could see in everything we were building, the cost declines as more and more automation was built into the th things that we were built. And that would feed back on itself and create base layer for more and more automation that effectively, and this is going to really, I saw some of the questions you asked the audience, and it'll come back into that, where you realize that in a free market, prices fall to the marginal cost of production. And the marginal cost of production of a lot of the stuff that we were building, while it had value when you built it, nobody else was there, then competitors would rush in and, and change that and marginal cost of production would fall to free. Mm -hmm. So prices were falling. And so it was, it, and so I saw this as my technology team could do more and more for less. And it costs us less to do more and more and give more value the entire way, not just in logistics, but across the company than in and artificial intelligence and where that was going. And so we had, I was very close to some of the top uh, researchers in artificial intelligence and very close to a bunch of the top teams in that. And I lived in that moment. I'd be invited to Google Zeitgeist each year with all of the other companies that were doing similar types of things, kind of 500 people in the world that were doing really interesting things. So I was inside that ecosystem building a company I th thought was delivering a whole bunch of value or I was building to provide a whole bunch of value, solve a problem for others. That family that I had to put up in a hotel and furniture, that was the problem. The building industry shouldn't look like that. I was trying to solve that problem. And then I, I actually got mad over time that technology is one side in their own silo and monetary theory was in this other silo. And you had economists trying to tell you what the world was going to look like. They had no idea about technology. Mm -hmm. And that kind of seems like an oxymoron when technology is the most important driver of productivity, right? And so these islands were very separate. And so over time, I started to really think about this. Why does it look like this? It forced me on this curiosity path 
to understand the existing, how the existing financial market system was wired and how it had to look like that because it was based on credit and how the new one would be wired as, as we transitioned to the other side. Wow. And I love that phrase you've used at the end there, the curiosity path. It's a, it's a mindset that I'm sure has taken you to lots of different interesting areas over time, Jeff, and who knows where it will take you in the future. We'll get to that in time, but I'm intrigued to just explore a bit more this nature of like, what it actually means when you see this. I'm intrigued by this process of seeing technology become more deflationary. So can you explain to us a bit more about, you know, when you say it costs you $5 million to create a technology product and years later, you're seeing that being created at a fraction of the cost. What does that actually mean in, in practice and equally the price that you can charge or the value that the technology delivers? What's the customer seeing? Are they seeing that also reduce in price or are you able to change your margin somehow as a business? Yeah. So the question um, presupposes this system we live in versus the system we're moving in. Why it's hard to see is we're transitioning to a new system, but you're carrying the baggage of the existing beliefs of the, the old system into the new system. And so what that would look like, let's say, let's say we could price out competitors through this, but we could remove all of the labor. Let's just go to kind of the edge case. Mm -hmm. We could use AI to remove all of our staff and we already had all of the people on our site and everything else. Then effectively we could use price and we might even bring down price a little bit, but increase our overall margins by doing so price out the world from competing against us. Cause they could never build that audience mm -hmm. again, as we removed our labor, is that fair, but that is actually why prices keep falling because the competitors, like if you had a financial system that manipulated money, then the manipulation of money drives that it steals the productivity that should flow to society in the form of lower prices. Mm -hmm. And it concentrates in monopoly businesses like mine was like Google is like Facebook. It just concentrates all of the gains because what, because that productivity should mean as labor comes out of the market, prices should fall in lockstep. You should get the world should be getting more for less, mm -hmm. but if you have another system, then it transfers that productivity to the holders of the existing system effectively mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. And so there are two opposing systems that are working one kind of on Bitcoin, that is actually the system I'm talking about. And one in the existing system that we live in that has to concentrate up further and further and further and has to centralize as, as a result. Well, and it's immediately, we've got to quite a, a complex discussion in the sense that a lot of people will never have thought about. And, and that's so often this, the case with Bitcoin, right? But what I love here, Jeff, is you're, you're a genuine insider, right? You've built a business, so you've got entrepreneurial experience, but that business was a technology product. And that has showed you how technology functions over time in terms of that productivity gain. So how do you best explain this to people? I mean, you, you've gone and written a book. I mean, I, I can't imagine you thought you'd do that, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, so I didn't want to write a book. I, I, I wrote the book because, <laughs> because when everybody's in a system, measuring that system by the very system that's manipulating the system, they will not come out of the system to understand how a different system could operate. It's the two opposing, they're exactly opposite forces. Mm -hmm. and and. And trust me, I, I imagined when I was saying campfire chit chat for 200, I talked about this all the time. I talked about it with heads of state. I talked about it with Trudeau. I talked about it with central bankers mm -hmm. and all of them perplexed. In fact, one of the central bankers, I would say, this was one of the things that pushed me over the edge to write the book. I'm breaking it now, but in a Chatham house rules <laughs> conversation, I brought up my thesis and he said, what would you have us do? And I said, that's not an answer, right? That isn't an answer. And so I realized the people that are at the top of the very system had no idea how to deal with technology and what that meant. And mm -hmm. that meant that there was going to be a phase transition to another system. And that was what, that's what kind of drove me to write the book because inside the existing system, you could see us going to war and division on an ex exponential path because people would fall into a trap of believing it was somebody else's fault or somebody else could save them from the very system 
that was going to make it worse. So it didn't matter. You could change any face inside that existing system and it wouldn't change it at all. Mm-hmm. So, and that would be human nature. Human nature would, would reinforce that system. So I looked at my young kids um, and said, they're not going to grow up in the world that I grew up in and have the same type of opportunities or the world's going to be very, very disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I need to do something about it. So that's what made me write the book. Awesome. And I love hearing those kind of Genesis stories. You reluctantly decided to to go out and, and put all this energy into creating a, a book that, I mean, I found immensely valuable and I'm sure many other people have. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. It makes such a difference to to be able to access information like that, that someone has really clearly thought of from a position of genuine authority in terms of your experience through life had, had taught you about this. And that's hugely valuable. Um, what I liked about it in particular in relation to Bitcoin, and this obviously being a Bitcoin show, is that it doesn't mention Bitcoin until pretty much the very end of the book. And what I like doing is really digging into like problem statements and you know, what is the problem in the first place? And that's where I'd kind of like to take this conversation now is the price of tomorrow does a great job of explaining, well, these are all problems and this might be a solution to these problems so for those people out there that maybe haven't read the book or equally aren't as tuned into this conversation as we might be just really lay down some of the hard truths that you see as the problem that we face in this existing financial system yeah and what i would say is even since writing the book and and the exploration of this problem and kind of what it would look like it's taken me down a whole bunch of other it's forced me to to understand that what I thought was a free market in a lot of cases and all of the wealth that I would create out of that free market had a cost to someone else somewhere else in the world. And it wasn't a free market. And those are those are hard things to realize that my success is driven by somebody else's failure. It's forced me into the, to a deeper understanding of how the world works and all of the world works. Because ultimately what we do is we gain intelligence and we build on other people's knowledge. In fact, technology is just a word for that, right? <laughs> Building and solving problems. And we connect with people all over the world to solve problems faster. So, so. And that, and the output of that should be prices fall. Like there's technology in energy, there's technology in fracking, there's technology in, in all industries. It's a base layer because it's the output of all of our thoughts, mm-hmm. building value. And we only use the value if it delivers us value. So we're both sides of the equation. We're the input in the labor and the ideas to come up with that. And we're the output in what we choose to buy right, or use. And that whole thing is just a value creation for all of society, meaning we're connected to every other person in the world through that value connection, or we're not. If we're not, if they're excluded from it, they don't have that value connection. So think about what a city, state, or country looks like with completely broken money. And it looks like anarchy, right? It looks like people starving and anarchy because they're not connected. That intelligence isn't isn't connected to provide value. Now, that means if you have broken money underneath the whole thing, if some people on top of it, if they take the U.S. as an example, whether they know it or not, if you have the currency value, that then you can impose somebody else to write down their currency to zero. Effectively, what you're doing, because they have a huge inflation rate or whatever, what you're able to do is strip mine their country. You're buying their resources, their labor, for way cheaper than you would. So we live in a connected world where we all matter. And if you break the rules of that trade by manipulating money, it has a cost. You might not see the cost, but it has a cost to somewhere. And investigating this I had to learn a lot more and break some of the things that I had taken for granted that weren't true. And then come to the choice, do you want to live in that system? Do you want to live in a world that looks like that? I'm fond of saying, if the emergent complex behavior of all of us on this planet was built on a theft, which it is, what would the mirror reflection look back at us? What would that look like? And you could see the entire world, if that theft had to increase over time, and all of our trade, all of everything we do was based on top of that theft, who would win? 
what would it look like? What would the mirror reflection looking back at you look like in the world? And then, and Bitcoin being the opposite system, what if it was based on the truth? What would the emergent complex behavior of society look like if it was based on the truth? And so those are the two worlds today, the existing world that we met, most people measure their life by and reinforce is 10,000 times bigger than Bitcoin. But for the people that have moved their purchasing to Bitcoin and moving more of their income to Bitcoin, they're taking early steps in advancing a system that looks totally different. And that's actually what it makes it feel so different for people that are really understand Bitcoin, people who don't. It feels like a religion for those that who don't because they have they don't understand how deep and profound it is, what a change it can be for society. It's so cool to talk about all this stuff, I must say. I found it deeply compelling on so many levels, the different subjects that you end up getting drawn into. And I can already think of like 15 questions I want to take this in a direction of. But the point here is that there's a severe problem that most of us have absolutely no idea. And that is that the, the base layer of our economies are built on this concept of theft that you just talked us through. We don't even realize. And, and, and then you... You use the word reinforced, and that I think is really interesting. So like basically over time, it's getting worse. And that's a really, really important point to kind of drive through to people that it cannot get better with it the current system. Yeah, it can't. The existing system has to get, it has to get worse mathematically and socially. It has mm -hmm. to divide us socially. It has to. And, and. And where everyone thinks that it's somebody else's job to fix it, we all have a role. And that's kind of the point. When you just anybody listening to this podcast or anybody asking a friend, ask what you would do. I haven't met one person who is, who is uh, given a, a reasonable backdrop to why my book, my, why my thesis isn't true in three and a half years, wow. right? Technology is deflationary. So if technology is deflationary, then the only thing that we live in the world is, is because we will allow manipulation of money. There's four, approximately $400 trillion of debt in the world. It's already insolvent, completely insolvent, because as things go to free, like your calculator app on your phone and your photos, as things go to free, it gets harder and harder to pay back that back. So in turn, you have to manipulate money faster and faster to be able to pretend you can pay it back with dollars that have been inflated away or time that's been inflated away or, or wages because inflation is wage deflation for most of the population, right? Mm -hmm. So you're paying people less to pretend you can pay back $400 trillion of debt that's already insolvent. And pay back a trillion dollars of debt at a dollar a second, and it would take approximately 32,000 years to pay back. So $400 trillion, it just breaks our mental models. We don't have a way to comprehend what's actually happening to the denominator of money. Mm -hmm. So we put up with this system. And then inside that system, ask any of your friend, ask any friend, would you vote for a politician who told you the truth and said, your real wages are going to go up next year, but your nominal wages are going to come down. We're going to pay you less, mm -hmm. right? But you're going to actually, in other words, you're going to have to be able to work less and you make more money, but we want to hear the lie. We want to hear, we're going to make more next year. We would never vote for a politician who would say that. Mm -hmm. We would never vote for a politician who would tell us the truth on this whole system. So. How could we expect politicians to not lie to us when we expect them to lie to us? Mm -hmm. The entire system is built, built on top of a system that requires manipulation of money to survive. Mm -hmm. And we are all part of that system. And then we all think inside that system, oh, I can make enough fast enough to escape that very system. Mm -hmm. and as we do it, we make that system stronger or we rise up and we march against the, uh, Wall Street. And we say, put somebody else in charge. But if the whole system relies on that manipulation, then it's just theater on top of it about mm -hmm. who's in charge. In fact, who's in charge is taking more out of the system by doing so. And outside of that really simple example, what I just said is applicable to everyone in the world. 
you can see, forget what other people are doing. You can see what you're doing. And the more you're doing inside that system, the more you're strengthening that system to hurt. It hurts you and many of those you love. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so when I started to understand that, I just started, okay, I, I get it. That, and, and there's no way out of that system right now, because if you just let it all collapse, it would be anarchy, mm -hmm. right? Like, can you imagine the starvation and the, it would yeah. just, you yeah. couldn't let it all collapse. So you had to build a bridge to another system that was outside of that system. And so what I just decided is to just spend more of my time in the world that I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And as more and more people do that, that world just takes over. We can talk about what the transition looks like and what people think it looks like, but that transition. Well, let, let's go there, Jeff. That's perfect. That's a, a great segue. So I think people will understand the bulk of your thesis from the book at this stage. And so yeah. got a good flavor for what the problem that we face is. So Bitcoin represents a, a bridge to this next way of building a society rather than what other people may look at the future as how do you see things and we won't get there yet but you know you've taken your entrepreneurial experience you've built a business you've seen this deflationary aspect on prices and you're also getting into venture capital i'd love to get into that later down the line and some of the deal flow that you're seeing you'll have literally at the coal face this is what's happening but just as a more generic view before we get there where are we going what bridge does bitcoin represent yeah, most of the things where people are blocked by Bitcoin are perceptions of how the existing system works that they're dragging into Bitcoin and Bitcoin works entirely the opposite. It's a 180 from the way the system works. So if you used use an economics term, wages are sticky, right? Wages being sticky in the existing system means people don't ask for wage increases as fast as inflation is flowing out. And that's what gives the system an ability to pick people's pocket, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wages being sticky in the, in the Bitcoin system means a massive transfer back to the middle class and poor because mm -hmm. your wages don't come down as fast. Same principle, different system. And so the re reason why people can't see it is because they're measuring from the system of manipulation. And so it has all sorts of profound implications on where this is going. And I, I say, I want to be careful of binary things, right? So from this is going, I, I can say this, this is going to happen. We are going to live in a Bitcoin system in time, but it's probably going to be a long time. And that if people are measuring in Bitcoin, then prices will fall forever according to Bitcoin. If they're measuring in fiat, they will think their house price is rising when it's actually falling against Bitcoin. So it's a measurement problem by the, your denominators, really, what's happening. But again, those prices of everything will continue to fall in, in Bitcoin. And that will mean over time, there's a bias towards value creators instead of rent extractors. Mm -hmm. right? So you're creating more value if you're building a business in Bitcoin. You're creating value and the output of that value is prices declining or your ability to price by creating a monopoly declining over time because prices are falling. What that means is not only are you winning, you're winning by creating that, that value or your employees are winning by creating that value for others, but the output of that value is driving prices lower and lower for everyone else. Mm -hmm. And the entire entrepreneurial drive, it's unstoppable at this point. Mm -hmm. that's driving into that system, which will create more and more value. Now, mm -hmm. where we are in that and where people people think, okay, we're in a hyper-Bitcoinization everywhere and that's going to happen next year, right? I think what they're saying is Bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars or X dollars. But again, they're measuring in the wrong currency. Mm -hmm. It's all prices falling against Bitcoin. I'm going to tell a story of a friend of mine who climbed mountains for uh, kids, children, hospitals. Um, and he was flying into McKinley and it's a really dangerous landing on McKinley. And, uh, and he saw a plane tipped over. So when the, he got down the bottom, he goes, he says to the pilot, uh, what happened there or whatever the pilot goes, Oh, everybody died. He goes, and my friend goes, Oh, I guess that airline's out of business. And, and the pilot goes, no, no, that's this airline. And, and he goes, what? And, and, and the pilot goes, eh, people forget. 
and it's really important. I use the story as an example, but people forget. But mm-hmm. if you're measuring in a system and your money has just been eradicated and you've lost all your value, and but then because of that value being eradicated and now globally, your labor is really cheap and it builds back again, mm-hmm. you've just lost all your bank accounts, everything else, and now it builds back up again. And inside that, you'll think, well, it's okay. I'll do it again. And it happens over and over and over again. So each time this happens all over the world, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Venezuela, each time this happens and it's rinse repeat, some people are going to fall in the trap of it's better this time, right? And they're not going to find Bitcoin. And some people are going to find Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And as that happens, more and more people are going to be building real value on top of Bitcoin and make it easier to interact and create value with each other. And more and more people are going to move to there to at some point, all of this is going to stop breaking it because more and more people are there. That is going likely going to take a long time and country by country or what that looks in like in every specific region is going to be, it's going to be really lumpy on the way through. And apart from that, the existing system has to essentially take us to war, mm. be able to protect their existing system. And we will most likely believe in that, or most people will believe in that and give that more strength. Wars are inflationary. Mm. It's a way for a system to reset it from this, from the existing system without people realizing what's happening. It just really gets the brain firing, doesn't it? This kind of conversation. But to use your story of the of the plane journey that your friend took, information does not f- flow through markets evenly. So your friend didn't know that the plane had crashed in that valley on the way to that mountain. But there might have been another person that was wanting to do the same climb who knew about that and got a different airline. And the point being is he knew or she that the plane had crashed and that airline wasn't to be trusted. The same thing is obviously happening with money and there'll be some people that experience hyperinflation and listen to the government's rhetoric a second time or a third time and they'll just carry on doing that and there'll be someone else who's heard from their friend of a friend of a friend that there's this thing called Bitcoin, maybe they should check it out. And over time, that will change. What I'd love to get from you, Jeff, though, is, you know, I I just want to retrace to that 10 years you were talking to heads of state about the prices, why the price is doing this, you don't understand technology, what's going on. I would imagine deeply frustrating and you started teaching us about this bridge to Bitcoin and how this system is different and how the prosperity potential is, is definitely better. How does this make you feel? So you, you've probably gone from a position of angst to a position of positivity, but just on a personal level, what's the impact been? Yeah, I, I cannot believe I get, so everybody in the world is still stuck where we're about to talk about. And there's some Bitcoiners that are spending their time yelling in an existing system that won't change it at all. In fact, it probably just strengthens it because when you're not inquiring to get somebody else to come to the, to the conclusion, when you're yelling at them about what the solution was before they understand how it's a solution to their problem, you actually drive them further away. You actually give power to the thing you were trying to, to, to stop. And so there's, and there's a whole bunch of people inside the existing system that gain their power from that very system. And so they're not likely to change it, but it doesn't matter because this is an open protocol. Every single one of us can just move our time over and move more of our time and more and more jobs are moving to that spot and more and more value is going to be delivered in that spot. So, so how I look at it is. I'm sad. I, I care about what, what is happening over here, but I can't do anything about it. I have empathy for everybody who doesn't see what I have. I have empathy for their pain. I, I, I know what's coming in a whole bunch of different places, but I can't solve it from there. The thing I can do is spend my time in truth, in hope, in abundance, and try to give an acceleration of all of my time into the place I want to see in the world. So. I spend my, I give an advantage. I spend my Bitcoin anytime I can to people. And people say, well, why would you do that if it's going to be worth so much money? Because I'm giving an advantage to it and I just buy more on the back end. I'm constantly buying more Bitcoin. One day I won't be able to do that, but today I can do it. Doesn't, there's nothing stopping me from doing it. 
So I'm trying to live more of the time, my time in the ecosystem that I want to see emerge. And as a result of that, I'm spending my time with the most amazing people on the planet. I like, I cannot believe I get wow. to do what I get to do. So it's just, and the entrepreneurs that are building, building layer two and layer three solutions or companies on top, or some of the other Bitcoin advocate and some of the people in this system, the intellect, the curiosity, the drive, what is inside the system, just by being inside the system, it's just, it, it, it feels incredible. I cannot believe it. Awesome. Let's segue into the venture capital side of things, because it's an area that I'm very passionate about as well, this idea of financing early stage ideas and helping people build out value from that stage. It's extremely risky, but also can be very valuable if you get it right. And it requires genuine expertise. You know, you can throw a lot of money at a bunch of early stage companies and have no idea what you're doing and lose all of it because you didn't know what you were doing. And so when you take your experience to date in building businesses and investing in early stage companies and you bring that Bitcoin lens, teach us about ego death and what you guys are building there. If there are any investors out there listening to this podcast, you know, are you still raising funds and how does that work? Yeah. So in coming up with that, and, and, and I saw one of the questions that was asked on Twitter, and this is going to maybe answer it from a different way. Most venture capital today looks at building a business with the biggest moat around it, mm -hmm. right? To be able to extract as much value and then sell that company publicly and return the giant funds to their LPs who invest in the fund and then raise their next fund. And that's not necessarily bad as far as you trying to build really good uh, businesses. But if you really understand Bitcoin and, and what that means is that's going to be almost impossible to do in Bitcoin because of what I said before, prices fall to, to the marginal cost of production, the marginal cost of production with AI and everything that's happening is going to keep on falling forever. And it means you have to have a totally different head space on on where value comes from and what it looks like. And the teams that you're backing need to be able to think about, okay, I'm going to create a lot of value here. And while I'm early here, I'm going to be able to create value and get paid for that. But eventually this is going to go to zero. I'm going to have to move to the next thing <laughs> to be able to create more value and the next thing to be able to create more value. And it's a different, even when you're raising. So yeah, I think when you do, when you have that a sense, we think we can outperform Bitcoin as an asset by quite a bit by building really great companies that use that protocol and, and are built on top of it. But over time, you also have to realize there's no moats. There's very few moats to be able to build around the business besides producing tons of value for, for users. And so is that the best moat then for uh, any entrepreneurs out there that are listening to, to this conversation that might be thinking, oh, I'm going to send a pitch deck to ego death. The summary of what you've just described to me would be like, just prove you're going to create a ton of value and you can be nimble enough to do that a number of times rather yeah, than and, and this so kind of idea of like in the startup space I've been in before, it's all about digital monopolies, you know, yeah. recreate and, and, these, totally. these, these walled gardens. And totally. if you're not doing that, we're not interested in investing. Yeah, prove totally. to me how you're different and the only people in the world that can do it and why you have this network effect that kills everyone else. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of things. And this is just my pattern recognition from seeing thousands of business plans and working and, and, and funding many, and then working with entrepreneurs, not a whole bunch. So I have deep, deep pattern recognition about kind of what I did wrong, what I did right. Some of the learnings that came through that experience and many of the others that I've been, been around. And anytime that I, I would invest in a company, at least in the early stage, let's say before Bitcoin, but same, same here, I would never make an investment for the money. I had always made an investment because I believed in that entrepreneur and I believed that entrepreneur could change experience and create lots of value through that. And I, and actually, because I never cared about the money, but I cared about the entrepreneur's ability to do that, it came across as helpful instead of what are you doing for me? I was able to have more influence and, and then out of that influence, I just had way more, way higher returns <laughs> because they were successful. It was a win, win, win kind of idea everywhere that I touched, they didn't all win, but I always went and I didn't care if I lost my money into it. 
I cared that I I maximized the chances. And even some of the ones that I lost money on, I'm still best friends with those entrepreneurs. And if they do something else, I would have to go. Mm-hmm. So that's just my own mental model. But there's so many things in that pattern that you learn over time and you think. So most entrepreneurs, myself included in the beginning, thought the secret was to go into the biggest market and make the widest splash. And the secret is exactly inverse. The secret is to be the biggest fish in the smallest pond that's overlooked. If you look at some of the monopoly power today that exists, Tesla started at the Roadster, only the Roadster, right? Niche market. And it's something that nobody else would do in inside that niche market. Google started at free search before search was a thing that you could make money on. And so it was a niche market that that's all they did. Amazon only books until, and so you dominate a niche market and then you expand from that niche market. And so that's just an example, but there's a lot of things that you think going into being an entrepreneur that in retrospect, it's the opposite to be able to create that value. And now if I look at what we're seeing in ego death, I look at kind of the 450 companies that we've done diligence on and and gone through, it's, it's staggering how much value is going to be delivered inside this ecosystem and on top of this ecosystem over time. And it's not one plus one equals three. It's this breeze comes in and offers non-custodial wallets and lightning liquidity. And then Sonoda comes in and does something uh, something for energy. And those two fit into be able to drive something faster. Fediment opens up this other whole bunch of different use cases using different various pieces. It's hard to even see right now, right? That if I said that to you and I said, it's hard to see until entrepreneurs say, oh, this piece and this piece over here create something entirely new that we couldn't do before. And that's where it's so exciting. And Noster is a piece of that, right? Noster is, uh, it's able to advance this ecosystem a whole bunch. And these pieces start to fit together and build more use cases. Wow. It's very, very exciting, isn't it? When you start to paint that picture, the bit that I particularly like about what you mentioned is the idea of investing in people as an early stage expert, let's say, whether that's as an entrepreneur building a business or putting finance into early stage ideas, there's not a big balance sheet to kind of do your analysis on to look at, you know, previous cash flows and work out what the value is. It's all about the people and who are they? What do they know that no one else knows? Who are they working with? And I, I find that very fascinating about you know, really just investing in people. All the company is, yeah. all any company is, is a collection of people with a shared mindset to create a lot of value for other people. When you're surrounded by really great people who want the best for you um, and you want the best for them, life's pretty easy. Mm. And that phrase of shared mindset, one thing that always bowls me over is when I have got further and further down this Bitcoin rabbit hole the last few years is the type of people that you're meeting in the space do tend to share a mindset. Here in Australia, in a couple of months' time, we've got an event in Sydney called Bitcoin Alive, and it'll be Australia's largest Bitcoin-focused event with maybe a thousand people there. I'm very excited to be part of that and and helping put the show on. And you're like, whoa, this is going to be so cool! Is meeting all these physical people in the same place with a shared mindset. And what's so yeah. incredible is to think that that's happening in every single country around the world. Like on my podcast, I think you'll be about episode seventy, and I've spoken to someone on every single continent that has a micro community around them also working on Bitcoin. And you think this is just an extraordinary kind of shared effort, essentially. Where I'd love to take take us next, Jeff, is Madeira. From a very selfish perspective, I've been diving into the, the rabbit hole. I'm originally from the UK and looking at spending more time in Europe if I can. So uh, what's the story with Madeira? Andre's been on the show and talked about his journey. Where are you at with that project? Yeah, uh, it's a work in progress right now. I would say that beside Madeira and why that's any interesting is you could have a a test. Uh, not, it's bigger than a test, but it, it could look like Bitcoin, but at a small nation state with the autonomy level. Now, the president well knows where the existing system is going, what will happen to the existing system, and he understands he needs to be able to transition value for the people of Madeira onto a new system to be able to build that in parallel to what's happening. 
And so Andre set up uh, and I'm helping with that free Madeira to be able to, to, to help advocate and bring Bitcoin to the community and a whole bunch of Bitcoiners are kind of moving there and transition there, spending time there. Um, businesses are starting to sign up. It's still early, but you have a chance of actually creating a real network effect with many different businesses taking it, many more people experiencing it, the diaspora sending money in it. And in a, in a regional area that with success can actually be a model for other regions to be able to do the same thing. So I'm really, really excited about it. I've started a business there, open bank accounts there. I'm not moving there yet, but I'm, uh, but I'm exploring the visa, uh, mm-hmm. to be essentially so that I have the golden visa. So, so if something happens here where I am, I have another region I could move to. Mm-hmm. A good strategy to have. I mean, certainly. From a personal perspective, I was in Melbourne, or well, I live in Melbourne for the last three years or so, of which two was in some form of lockdown. I'd never felt so insecure in my whole life, to be honest. I, I had two small babies living in a in a property that the government said I couldn't leave the front door, and you're just like, what the hell's happened? Now, obviously, yeah. Australia is a big continent, so you can very easily get lost eight hours outside of town, and no one will ever find you. But I'm interested in building businesses. I'm interested in community. And this idea of jurisdictional arbitrage is something that I'm very keen to to leverage, frankly. And if you have a digital focused business, I don't need to sit and open my cafe every 5 a.m. You know, I can go wherever I want. And so to know that there are places around the world that are bringing talent together, like who knows what opportunities will come out of that. And it's something yeah, that's very okay. exciting. Yeah. So that's actually one of the things that we talked about with the president as well is you could be anywhere and you could create a new Silicon Valley because the, the talent is in the cloud. This talent mm-hmm. is in the peer-to-peer internet that's emerging from the ground up. And with satellite communication today and energy security today and localized energy today, we used to have to be forced to cities through the centralization of energy and communications because then there was more going on in the cities. So it drove more people to the mm-hmm. cities and then centralized our food production to those cities, and it produced a whole lot of risk in those points getting broken, right? And and now in a world that's moving into more chaos, some of those supply chain, energy connections, everything else will be broken and produce a whole bunch of risks for the inhabitants of those cities or different regions of the world. Because we live in a globally connected world that is starting to break apart because of broken money. And so jurisdictional arbitrage is really important. Having flexibility to be able to go to where you want to go is and Bitcoin gives you some of that flexibility. Can you just get on a plane mm. and, and bring your seed words or have somebody phone you with seed, your seed words and you have all your money. And there's going to be a whole bunch of regions all over the world that are going to want you. So this is just an example of one of those regions mm-hmm. that is, that's moving that way and a really exciting example. It's it's really cool to think through. And just one thing I swore to myself was to never end up in such a vulnerable situation. Like as a new dad and with a family to think about, you're like, I'm never, ever, ever letting that happen again. And although I could have left Australia at the time, as Australian citizens with no second passport, you physically couldn't get out of Australia unless you had yeah. some kind of exemption from the government. I mean, it was just right. ridiculous. Could it happen right. again? Yes, absolutely it could. And the government's yeah. brought in more more policy that's given itself more power since this all happened, not the opposite. And to your point about systems, the system, it's only going one way. And when you have conversations like this and you don't take action, then, you know, full on you, mate. And interestingly, I have seen like, you know, reactions to this. There's all sorts of cool stuff happening in Australia with meetups, this thing called the Australian Beef Initiative, like really, really cool grassroots decentralized wisdom to bring food to the table, to teach yourself to, you know, have Bitcoin. When there are options on the table, you have to consider them. I think that's the point. Yeah, that's it. And and I had the same thing with helping the Bitcoin get to the truckers in Canada Mm. and being being part of that. I was targeted and potentially had risk of bank accounts shut down and everything else. But more than that, what I saw is when 65% or so of the population turns against you, for the same reason about standing up for free speech, you realize huh, how many people are going to get trapped inside the existing system 
because they believe in it. And, and it, it just made me really think I need the same thing. I need to have flexibility for my family. Wow. And sorry, Jeff, just to, to flesh that out a bit. So 65% of Canada was against the, the trucker convoy and you were yeah. someone that was facilitating funding the trucker convoy. And even in your social circles, like how did that play out and how did that feel? So, so there were letter writing campaigns against every one of my businesses to be able to get Jeff off the board, public companies, no way. Uh, hospital foundation. I resigned from hospital foundation. They, they effectively put out a statement after I resigned from that, after helping that hospital foundation a lot, if that our views don't align with Jeff's views. So throwing it under the bus, it was crazy. It was literally crazy. I don't normally jump into the, so those memes about clown world and everything else, but it's, uh, <laughs> But it just made me think, like, everybody's asleep at the wheel. Like, how could you not be for free speech um, in a democracy? And you're using emergency powers acts to essentially wartime measures to be able to lock people's bank accounts. And most of the population is saying that's the right thing to do. It was outrageous. Wow. That kind of brings me slightly back to what I mentioned before, which is like, you know, the, the information's there. If we don't act on this information and we end up in precarious positions where we are literally locked up and can't go anywhere, the information is there to do something about it. And that's where someone like Madeira is so compelling. And El yeah. Salvador is another example. And there's other places around the world that are popping up and that will continue to, to accelerate as well. Jeff, what I'd love to do, I've got one last question, if that's okay with you. From the audience at MOOCs89, what are some of the best things for parents to introduce to prepare children for the information age? Curiosity. I would say how to learn and how to constantly question your own beliefs. First principles, curiosity. Um, people talk about intelligence. It's not intelligence. What you realize is when you, I, I read over 50 bucks a year. I listen to audiobooks at three or three and a half speed. Um, and in doing some of these hacks, and I have for 30 odd years, before I wanted to learn, I wanted to learn how to increase my rate of learning. My first three books before I really took reading seriously were how to speed read and then to be able to kind of hack that learning process. And then what you realize is as you're learning is, is how much you don't know and it makes you more curious. And so the more that, that path actually begets more curiosity because I, that question is a really good question because I think about it with my own kids and that's mm. what I want to inspire them to. I want to, I, I don't care what they do. I care they do what they want to do and they're designing the life that they they want well what a brilliant way to to finish up jeff thank you so much for joining me today it's been awesome where can people reach out and get in touch if they want to probably best these days on nostr you know what why don't we do why don't we do this if you got one more second i want to answer yeah yeah question. absolutely okay. please okay could you just remind me the question about how nostr why would people build that yeah, so that was Matteo Pellegrini, who's the founder of the Orange Pill app and his okay. lead designer. Let me just dig it up. Why should Nostra be interesting for Bitcoin companies if users can easily leave and take their data with them? Who would invest in building products and services if profit is unsure and your stuff can just be copied by a competitor at will? A race okay. to the bottom? So, so inside that, we already tackled that question in a number of different ways, but inside that question, that is the perception of the existing system and how the existing system works. So Will, who created Amazon, created it by himself. And when I say technology falls to or prices fall to the marginal cost of production, he gets donations to be able to build that. And he doesn't need to hire an advertising team. He doesn't have to hire anybody. He doesn't have to build that company. He can, if he wants to, but he can fund that entire thing by himself. He doesn't need an economic model to be able to do it. Just donations is enough to build it. That's actually why the very thing we're talking about is the reason prices keep falling. He doesn't have to, um, he's a value creator. <laughs> he can create this. If he wants to charge somewhere else for relays to be able to make that, and his relays are better than other people's relays. Maybe he monetizes that that way. If he wants to build a bigger team and he doesn't have enough donations to be able to, to, to do that, then he has to charge his users 
to be able to, uh, to use that. If those users are charged, they might go to a different app, right? Mm. What we're describing, what that question is, is describing is actually the point that prices fall to the marginal cost of production in the free market period mm. and our output all over the world why we're fighting so hard to make more money in this existing system and create more money is because we think prices are going to go up forever. Mm. But in Bitcoin, they're coming down forever. Mm. It's a completely different mindset, isn't it? Because I also think through Bitcoin itself as a deflationary asset. In it, theory, it's, it's neutral. Okay. Inflation is caused by productivity. Yep. It's just neutral money will exhibit prices will fall against Bitcoin. Okay. Interesting. Yep. 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 Okay. That's a very different definition to how I'd been thinking about it before. Okay. And so due to the nature of productivity, the purchasing power of said neutral money increases over time. Exactly. Okay. Got you. So one thing I'd thought about though, and, and the mechanics kind of the same is an entrepreneur, you give them a Bitcoin today, that productivity gain over time will increase the, the purchasing power of said Bitcoin. Yep. That Bitcoin could then be used as the sole financing vehicle for said creator over time, right? Yes. And, and yes. so that completely changes the venture capital model anyway. And so um, instead of instead of debt being juiced into the economy, debt is going to collapse. It's going to be repriced. The entire debt stack is re being repriced from Bitcoin. Whether it gets repriced through inflation or deflation, the entire debt stack is going to be repriced inside Bitcoin. If you chose to take on debt, let's say I'm going to lend somebody money against my Bitcoin mm -hmm. and they have to outperform the, the natural productivity rate. So they're going to need to pay that back. In other words, the debt gets more expensive for them to be paid back instead of the existing system where it gets less expensive. So what they have to do to overcome that hurdle rate puts either me at risk or them at risk, mm -hmm. right? Because either if they fail and business goes zero, I lose everything or vice versa, and they lose or I take way more of the business through that debt. And that's why people are going to make those mistakes and they're going to get flushed out on this. But over the long term, that flushing out of people are going to be because um, they think in Bitcoin, the debt works the same as in the existing system. It works exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so in the long run, there just be far, far less debt in the market and more people will be actually making partners. Like, like we said, what we're doing at ego death or like I've always done, I want you to succeed. I'm going to invest equity in you succeeding. And I'm going to try to help you succeed. It'll turn more towards that over time. And sorry, Jeff, so just to go back to, to Ralph's question then. So as a product developer using Nostra, the, the funding mechanism or the monetization of the work that's required to create the value is, is effectively completely different in this completely new world. Different. And yeah. so when you're looking at the commercial strategy of a opportunity to build with Nostra, you just got to think differently about how you fund yourself essentially. Yeah. And if you generate value for people and they start storing their data in your ecosystem of some form, then you need to continue to provide value for them to the extent that they don't move somewhere else. So it's like a, it's the market force essentially that there's the market self, forces, uh, to use that word yeah. reinforcing again. And that is a network effect. How interesting. Wow. Okay. So, so what's interesting, even at a bigger level than that is most network effects die eventually because they centralize, right? And once they centralize to be able to control people, you have to exclude people. You have to turn off some people's voices. Like if you said YouTube or Facebook or anything so else, whatever, yeah. as a, it works really well at first. Everyone's gaining value. And the definition of value from a network effect is each new user adds incremental value for all people. Mm -hmm. But as they centralize, they can't achieve that anymore, mm -hmm. right? Because as they get bigger, they have to extract and they have to turn, they have to hurt some people to be able to protect the existing, the, the majority. And then in, in Bitcoin, it works exactly the opposite. You have a network effect literally forever because mm -hmm. it drives decentralization as well. And productivity. So and productivity. as the productivity Just is increased, 
Yeah, it just, oh, in other words, every new a Bitcoin, every new user of a protocol or system or any of these mm. pieces drives a corresponding network to all users forever in perpetuity. And I mean, there's just some things that floating around my head. I, I must comment on them if you don't mind. Another couple of minutes. I haven't completely finished Bitcoin as Venice yet, but Alan Farrington's excellent writing about yep, capital. Right. And yep. I'd never before really dug into like, what is GDP? And how does GDP change over time? And what does it mean when there's someone that's creating value that didn't exist before? And it's still measured by this kind of catch-all value metric, which is GDP. But like, why are we measuring the output of an economy today with the same measurement as 100 years ago when all the companies are different and all the people in it are different? And, and just it does a really good job of dissecting why GDP is just a terrible metric. And terrible. the fact is we should so be measuring the, productivity. Yeah. So, but again, how can you measure productivity from the existing system when productivity is the removal of GDP, right? So, so, because look at the, look it's at what possible, we're using. isn't it? Wow. Yeah, it's, it, it, they're entirely different systems. So, mm. how much productivity gain has come from the photos that you use that are completely mm. free today, or the AI, or this, or what we're doing right now? Where does that show up in GDP? No, it doesn't. It, doesn't. it can't. Yeah. It doesn't because it's a, because it falls to free. Mm -hmm. Let's just hypothesize for a moment in terms of the future. Wait, wait, keep keep going, keep going on it. So every time that happens, every single innovation at an exponential rate has to drive more monetary easing on what's left mm -hmm. to be able to overcome the things that are falling to free. Yeah, otherwise it's all bankrupt, the whole thing. Otherwise the whole thing's bankrupt. That's why they're just two exponential patterns moving further. further. Where, where I was going with that though, and just in my head was, how do we measure productivity gains? So in a Bitcoin world, when you have a neutral money and the productivity gains equal increasing purchasing power in the neutral money, Will we structure our economies around productivity rather than say GDP? Like, will that it'll be just, just a new it'll, metric? It'll, it'll just happen. So the productivity gains will be measured in prices falling. In prices, less, of course. In prices. Yeah. The, okay. The, so the, 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 the price the action of every service, of everything, every product, everything, everything you could ever want will be reflective of the productivity gain that's actually happened. That's the point I was trying to make in the book. That's the yeah. way to abundance. Can't drive abundance any other way. So it won't be a team of government-funded economists sitting around going, we think the GDP of this country is X. It'll be like, okay, how much does it cost to buy? Boom, 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 boom. Okay, like a, a genuine CPI kind of basket, and but all, it'll be yeah, a productivity exactly. basket. Yeah. And all of that other stuff falls away. And when you think about the system, so just even think about regulation or financial regulation or, or all of the just garbage. bigger <laughs> garbage. So, so you have... Financial regulation trying to, to protect you from losing your money on top of a system designed to steal your money. Mm. So yeah. think about these th things. And, and when you think about them, you just, huh. But again, most of the world is looking through that looking glass, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. reinforcing. And, and Jeff, that's a brilliant way for us to wrap this up. So what I love about these conversations again and again i'm impressed by the people that have been willing to come and spend time with me but it's the lens that they're applying to the world that i find so incredibly rich in terms of the information it generates for me and thank you so much for sharing everything today because the lens that you have on the world around us is deeply fascinating and lots of people will have learned so much from it yeah so jeff nostra is where people can reach out and get in touch yeah and, and if you wanted to find my public key jeffbooths.ca is my website so you yep. can find my public key and some of the other stuff i've written and okay i'm going to ask one final selfish question because i haven't done enough work on nostra yet but as someone who's in the content creation space currently i'm looking at how to monetize things in terms of you know, bitcoin companies and advertising and a kind of traditional media model in that sense but I'm deeply conscious of posting content on all of the traditional social media platforms purely because of the fact that you don't really own the real estate that you're generating value from and Nostra changes that. So should we just be all migrating headlong into that ecosystem and just forget everything from before or how do we manage that? Can I say as fast as you can really, and, and, and as much time as you can. And I say that because I care about you and I can, and, and think about this, if you just play this forward, if your data and all your work is being 
and being funded by advertisers and a company who then give you a tiny little bit of that spread and can shut you off anytime, right? Then, then for the more and more you're working, you're actually working for peanuts for these monopolies. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're doing. You're spending all of your time trying to figure out their algorithm, which is figuring and eventually yeah. it's going to be replaced with AI. And so are you inside that system. You're trying to arbitrage that against the platform. Okay. Now think about what's happening on Noster. If you build an audience and it's easier to build an audience, like try to build an audience on YouTube today versus when YouTube started, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now what if you were able to start when, when these platforms were just emerging, but they were decentralized mm -hmm. and you take your audience like that to any other client. Mm -hmm. So the audience that you're building and how fast you could build that audience on Noster is yours forever, mm -hmm. as long as you're valuable to them. Mm -hmm. And no platform could stop you. So that means if you're early on this on Noster, and then YouTube comes on Noster, on or a version of YouTube comes on Noster, or music comes on, your audience is interchangeable with all of it. Mm -hmm. It's your audience, and nobody can take it away from you. Your content is yours forever. So if you provide value, think about trying to compete with you ten years from now. If you have a million people that are following you and everything else, and somebody just starts on Noster at that point, mm. now it's still clunky. It's emerging. Some people are saying, oh, it's harder to use than you. Yes, the centralized platform yeah. will be easier because they've had all of these teams working on it forever to be able to, to do that. But the cost of that ease is a massive cost on you. Mm. Move as fast as you can and spend as much time as you can. Yeah, it, it'll serve you That's well. wonderful advice. It's been something that's been playing on my mind because I'm I'm aware that audience size generally reflects to revenue growth and it's something that I'm just intrigued to trying to to figure out as an entrepreneur in a sense like how do you make money from this get out of that system spend your time I mean spend 99% of your time in the system that's emerging mm -hmm. because it'll be that much more valuable for you over the long term and, oh. and that's that's, that's, that's what's going to happen to because it, piddling around in all of these other things, thinking you can gain an audience mm -hmm. against all of the other millions of people doing the exact same thing mm -hmm. is going to waste a lot of your time. Yeah. No, and I'm not interested in doing that. And I am fortunate as well in that I've been able to buy Bitcoin. So I have lower time preference, basically. So it's like, so, so, just, just, just so you know, yesterday I joked around with my wife because yesterday uh, before I woke up, I made $7 on, on Noster just, it, just because of value of content that I was putting on and people tipping me and saying, wow, you're valuable to me. Wow. Right. And at $7 or whatever, but I don't measure it in dollars. I measure kind of in, in, in Bitcoin or sats and that yeah. tipping mechanism at the base layer of that, and what that means, you can see the emergence of something that looks totally different. Mm. It's very exciting, isn't it? Well, Jeff, so I normally shoot for an hour. I, I could really talk to you for yeah, two, well, three, we, four we hours. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so, so much for your time. Thanks, Jake. Okay, friends, nice work. You made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. As I said at the start, if you have any questions, then please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please rate, like, subscribe, and share. That's it for now. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best, Jake.